0: Jesus, we are going to look at some of your difficult words this morning, but where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we are thirsty for you. Holy Spirit, open our ears and fill our parched lives with streams of your living water. Amen. So no one really says it anymore, at least not seriously. But about 10 years ago, an inspiring slogan swept the nation. It was all the rage on hats, on t-shirts, and songs, and hashtags. It was challenging. It was daring. It was thought-provoking. It was a call to arms. What was it? YOLO. (laughs) You only live once, meaning You only have one shot at life, so go big, live large. People would usually say this before doing something reckless or foolhardy, like jumping out of an airplane or getting a tattoo from the receptionist rather than the tattoo artist. True story, not mine. You might not know this, but Christians actually have our own slogan that's super super inspirational. How do we live life to the fullest? D-B-Y-D. Have you guys heard of this? C.S. Lewis actually coined it. I don't know why it's not on any t-shirts, maybe because it's not that catchy. I've been saying it all morning and I still trip over my words. D-B-Y-D, die before you die. This is, of course, a famous line from mere Christianity. Die before you die, there's no chance after. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to something very similar that Jesus says. So just before our gospel reading, Jesus had just brought a man back to life who had been dead for three days. And on account of this incredible, miraculous sign, many people are going away from their Jewish faith and believing in Jesus. And as Jesus' popularity grows, the Jewish leaders become Understandably incensed, they look for any and every opportunity to take him down and get rid of this threat to their established norms and authority. So what is Jesus going to do next? Will he go into the heart of the most holy city, Jerusalem, for the biggest feast of the year, Passover? Will he come face to face with the people who want to end his life? Crowds are swelling, shouting big things like, Hosanna. And yes, we see that he does come into town. And the Pharisees, with an exasperated cry, say, look, the entire world is going after this guy. Of course, the whole world wasn't really there at the triumphal entry, but they would be soon. And just think. What would the Pharisees say if they knew that we were still talking about this story on the other side of the globe globe, 2,000 years after it had happened? So today, we're going to walk through this interaction that happens between Jesus and a new group of people who are looking to see him. How does Jesus respond to their cry? And what encouragement can we pull out from this passage? So turn your bulletins or open your Bibles to John 12. In verse 22, we, in verse 20, we read, Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. As if on cue, these Greeks are the evidence that Jesus is drawing more people to himself. And it's not just Jews. It's people all across the Mediterranean of all different backgrounds. What have they heard about this man? What about Jesus is attracting them? Maybe they've heard he can feed an army from crumbs, restore someone's sight with mud, or maybe they just like his teachings. Regardless, Jesus' fame is becoming global. And sometimes, don't you think we just forget how attractive Jesus is? In our post-Christian culture, don't you think there's a tiny bit of tendency in us to be ashamed about our faith and keep our relationship with Jesus private? There is for me. Surely others wouldn't be interested in what I have to say, but what if that's actually not the case? What if we shared what Jesus says to us and what he does in our lives? Do you think other people would be attracted to that? I do. So the Greeks first approached the disciples who then approached Jesus. And curiously, we don't even know, we actually don't see that Jesus speaks directly to the Greeks, but instead he explains how his actions in the coming days are gonna make it possible for them not just to see him, but to become united with him. My uncle used to be part owner of a racetrack, and I spent many summer nights working concessions with my grandma, watching the car races. And cars would warm up their engines by making a couple of laps around the track, getting into position. And this will give you a bit of a hint of what, kind of, what the cars could do, but then also who the drivers were. Were they aggressive? Were they punchy? Were they sly? Were they daring or strategic? The anticipation would build and build for the spectators as well as the drivers. Everyone would have their eyes peeled on the flag guy who would um, suddenly raise the green flag and the cars would start the race. So up until this point, it's as if Jesus has been making laps, warming up, getting up to speed, giving us glimmers and hints of who he is but he's been somewhat guarded about his end game. The hour has been something far off in the future. Remember at the wedding in Cana, when they ran out of the wine and his mom asked for help and he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour hasn't come. Or he's talking with the Samaritan woman at the well and he says, the hour is coming when there will be no geographical disputes about where you should worship. The presence of these Greeks says something to Jesus. Now is the time. The hour has come. You see, Jesus' fame is spilling out beyond the Jews. And Jesus realizes the time is now. But this doesn't have to be the case, right? Jesus could have seen this as a moment to take his teaching and healing ministry to the next level. He could have sought after bigger and better. But we know that's not why he came. His mission is focused elsewhere. And now that the knowledge of him is spreading, Jesus knows that it's time to turn his face toward his end goal. So Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? What is glory? We don't really use that word a lot in our day and age, right? When you think of the word glory, what image pops into your head? an Olympic athlete standing on top of a podium, a presidential inauguration, a young CEO ringing the NASDAQ opening bell with a baby on her hip. That did happen. <laughs> Being on the cover of your favorite hobby magazine. Glory and I are, in our society looks like abundant success of wealth, poverty, and status. But the Gospel of John reveals that Jesus' hour of glorification is nothing less than the author of life being executed in the most grotesque fashion available. Johns warned us readers ahead that um, the Jewish leaders are desperately trying to arrest Jesus and stop his growing movement. But no one had laid a hand on him yet, because his hour had not yet come. But that's insider info. That's only available to us. No one in this interaction anticipates that, although Jesus has been dropping hints. So how does Jesus define his hour of glorification for the people present? Well, it begins with death. In verse 24, he says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What looks like utter defeat for the grain being buried in darkness and hidden from plain sight is actually its precondition for harvest. A seed that's not buried can't bear fruit. Similarly, what looks like the absolute proof for everything against Jesus' claim to say and be actually becomes the supreme argument for and display of God's love. Jesus' death and resurrection has produced the fruit of billions of believers in every corner of the globe. What a harvest has come from this singular burial. But the cross isn't just a pesky errand Jesus had to get out of his way before he could be glorified. It's not background filler for some rags to riches story. No, Jesus' horrifying death on the cross is his glory. Jesus was driven to the cross not on account of his wrongdoing, but ours. Jesus' sacrifice of his own life is at the heart of the revelation of the Father. God is love, and love is laying down one's life. The cross isn't a distraction from Jesus' glory but its most striking display. So the cross flips our cultural definitions of glory upside down, doesn't it? Tim Keller says, On the cross, Christ wins through losing, triumphs through defeat, achieves power through weakness and service, comes to wealth via giving it all away. Jesus turns the values of the world upside down. This is an otherworldly picture of glory. Surely not what anyone had in mind while they're waving palms saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus begins speaking in general terms and invites us to contemplate how we want to live. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. The story says the Greeks wanted to see Jesus, and I think we could all resonate with that very good desire. But is it enough merely to see? Instead, are you stirred to more? Are you stirred by the invitation to follow him where he will be? Is that attractive? There's that famous painting, "A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. I don't speak French, so I'm going to butcher this, by George Seurat. You see a lot of people, probably upper-class upper people, unmasked, relaxing on the bank of the river Seine. These people are just out for a casual stroll, holding parasols, having picnics, taking their pet monkey on a walk. No joke. <laughs> Look it up. It's a mesmerizing piece that's like six feet by 10 feet and made up of millions of those tiny little dots. So what would happen if on one of our lovely negative 40 degree winter days of Minnesota, you're admiring that piece of art and all of a sudden the artist invited you into it? Would you jump in? I would, right? How does that picture compare with the invitation that we receive from Jesus? At first glance, it doesn't look like much of a picnic. It looks intense, difficult, radical. Jesus calls us to die, to hate our lives in this world, to follow him on the Calvary Road and become his servants. On one level, I think we hear this and can get really excited about this vague notion of self-sacrifice. What a noble way to live, Right? I don't watch them, but isn't this how every superhero movie goes? (laughs) Or every space movie? Bruce Willis in Armageddon, George Clooney in Gravity, Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar. In all these movies, someone always dies for someone else. Sorry if I just spoiled one. (laughs) But the longer we sit with this call, the longer that I have meditated on this passage, the harder it is to swallow. Death? Really? What if I just give up 80% of a besetting sin? Isn't that good enough? Do I really need to ask God how to spend my COVID stimulus check? No, I haven't had any employment trouble this year. All my bills are already taken care of, but it's been a really hard year emotionally. What if I just work really hard and knock this one service project out of the park? Could I be off the hook for a while? Have any of you read The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein? If you look at the back of that book, it looks a lot like that guy. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I should have brought the book. Woo! Um, doesn't this path of self-sacrifice that Jesus is describing look like the end of that really sad book? The boy just keeps asking for more and more and more of that poor tree and what's she left with at the end of her life, nothing but a stump. On a far more serious note, last week, a man who claims to be Christian horrendously took the lives of eight people, six of whom were Asian-American. And I know I don't have to tell you all, that what he did is diametrically opposed to what followers of Jesus are called to do. When we say yes to following Jesus, we sign up to put ourselves in front of a bullet, not to pull the trigger. Granted, most of us are never gonna be in such a dramatic position. But are you aware that over the course of this last year, there have been 3,800 hate crimes recorded against the Asian American community, the majority of which are women and many of which are elderly. Laying down your life doesn't have to mean stopping a bullet, but it does mean standing up for the God-given dignity of every human person. Do not fall for the trap that small acts of love and generosity don't count. Mother Teresa said, do not think that love, in order to be genuine, has to be extraordinary. What we need is to love without getting tired. Be faithful in small things, because it is in them that your strength lies. Jesus invites us here to a very real and a very daily death, to self-interest, self-preoccupation, self-aggrandizement, and it is costly. But there is so much good news in this passage for us. There's a lot more than I'm about to share, but as I wrap up, let me quickly point out three major encouragements that I find. First, Jesus gives us a picture to hold on to when things get really hard. Think of one lonely seed and what an incredible multiplication of harvest can come out of that. As difficult as these invitations are to die, to hate your life, to follow Jesus, to become his servant— Don't you think it's far scarier and much more difficult to go against the grain of this wisdom? Remember, Jesus tells us, I come to give you life abundant. We can choose not to die, not to surrender our whole will and our whole self to Jesus. And sure, we'll be protected from being cracked open in some places, But we're gonna remain alone and dormant, not having a clue about what kind of fruit might be multiplied in and through us. What if we, as individuals, as friend groups, as families, as the church, were known for a harvest of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control? We can, Love our lives in this world and have pleasures galore. That's like the motto of our day, right? Treat yourself. But they'll be self-serving and fleeting. And the moment we catch a bit of happiness, it'll slip through our fingers and we'll forever be restless, chasing the next high and the next high and the next one. What freedom comes with giving up our active participation in a doggy dog world where everyone's out for themselves? What kind of quality of life comes when we have a healthy sense of detachment from business as usual in this fallen, selfish world? Now, unfortunately, we can't avoid the next two things. We can't avoid following Jesus to physical suffering and death. Because one day that's gonna come for us all, our bodies will eventually start breaking down and someday give out. But what if you could have the very presence of the living God with you in the valley of the shadow of death, as well as the experiences of mountaintop delight? What if you could be assured that wherever you went, you'd be with Jesus and when you eventually do die, you will be with him forever? And I know I don't have to tell you this, but you actually can't live without a master. Whether we're serving a rabid appetite for physical health, the accumulation of wealth, the acquisition of power, or the admiration of friends, we've got to serve somebody. I think a famous Minnesotan said that. But what if the Father honored us with the following words, well done, Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my rest. You see, on the flip side of this radical invitation is a beautiful portrayal of an abundant, fruitful life. But do you know what I love about the next couple of verses? (laughs) Right after Jesus describes this painful future that he's committed to, he shows us his humanness. Jesus feels anguish and can sympathize with us. This is our second encouragement. Jesus is under no illusion that what's ahead of him is easy. And he didn't face his hardships with stoicism. So nor do we have to. John doesn't record any Garden of Gethsemane moment. This is what some scholars refer to it as. But he does include the short prayer conversation between Jesus and his father. Oh, my soul is troubled. I'm in total anguish. But what do I say? Father, save me from this hour? How relieving is it for us to see that the temptation to turn away from the cross in itself is not sin? So, what does Jesus do and how does he move forward? He asks his Father for help Father, glorify your name. Help me in this next crucial week. Do everything you want me to do and do it all the way you want it done so that, Father, you'll be most honored. Jesus feels anguish and asks for help, as can we. As we heard from our beautiful epistle reading today, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Following God's way is hard. DBYD is never gonna catch on. (laughs) Jesus was the one who said that this is a narrow path. He understands the difficulty of surrender. He understands the fickleness of our hearts. But when we mess up and demand to be served instead of serving others, We don't have to shrink back from God in shame. We can draw near with confidence and ask for mercy. And then we can ask for grace to help us lay down our lives for others. So it's great to have this vision of the good life. And I'm so thankful that Jesus can sympathize with us. But now I get to tell you the most encouraging thing for me in this passage. The third encouragement is that Jesus makes following him possible. It's only because Jesus surrendered to the will of the Father that we have any shot at it. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And Romans 6 says, We were buried with Christ by baptism into death. So here's the good news this morning. If you've been baptized with Jesus, you've already died. All the things that Jesus asks us to do, to hate our lives, to follow him into suffering, to serve him with unwavering devotion, these are things that just naturally flow from a life that's hidden in Christ. This is a description of a Christian, not a prescription that we can never live up to. Does this mean we're perfect? No, <laughs> absolutely not. But I do invite you to join me in looking unflinchingly at our lives and asking Are my weaknesses as a friend, as a neighbor, as a wife, as a mom, as a daughter, owing to something that needs to die in me, a self-serving habit, a secret sin, a root of pride, a need for approval, a desire for wealth and comfort? Or said in another way, am I striving against my Christian nature by trying to keep something alive in me that needs to die? Remember that sad picture of the giving tree? In a couple of chapters after this one in John, Jesus gives us a more beautiful one. He says that he is the vine and we are the branches. Without the vine, the branches can do nothing. Without a deep and abiding connection to Jesus, none of what I shared is possible today. In fact, You will burn yourselves out. You will end up like a stump. Oh, how little we understand our need for the vine, but also how perfect our claim to all the fullness that Jesus wants to give us. Jesus calls us to death. D-B-Y-D. Let's that be our rallying cry. (laughs) but for the fullness of an abundant, rich, fruit-filled life and deep communion with him and the body of Christ. He sympathizes with us when we're tempted to turn from the cross. And through his own death and resurrection, he makes this way possible. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Oh, Jesus, Grant us grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. That among all the beautiful and shiny things of this world, that our hearts would be surely fixed on you, where true joys are to be found forevermore. Amen.